From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We've been doing it for more than eight years now. And for the last two, we've been doing it via Zoom. Allows usually almost always all of us to get on here. This week, we're without Eric Bradlow. He's out and about doing Eric Bradlow things. He'll be back. We have Audie Weiner here. We have Shane Jensen here. And this is Kate Massey. I think we're going to have Audie for most of the show. Not quite all of it, but most of it. And we got Shane along for the whole ride. As usual, these days, we're going to start with a little COVID conversation in Q1. Then we'll fold into some open topics over the next two quarters. And we'll end with an interview not just on football analytics, but biostatistics and some other analytics in Q4 with a colleague of ours over in the biostats department. Gentlemen, it's Tuesday afternoon. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. The show will go up on Wednesday, Wednesday morning. Curious, in the last week, what's caught your eye in the world of COVID-19? I'm happy to jump in uh, as uh, I've been inundated with some texts and comments and emails from friends and community members regarding the FDA decision, which just happened today, I believe, um, announcing the approval of Americans over 50 to take the additional booster shot, making the total number of shots that you'd be eligible for, uh, marking an increase from three to four. And that is uh, big news. Um, and we should, cons- we should be thinking about that and talking about it. Well, uh, okay, the question, question is, how jealous is Shane? Is jealous? Is Shane jealous of his three? No. No, no I mean, hey, senior well, uh, just, just, just so I, 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 I confess I didn't know the current state. I assume, like, was the fourth booster approved for, like, uh, was already approved for immunocompromised individuals? Is that, I mean, there was a subset of people with the fourth booster. This is an extension of the fourth booster approval right. to the general population over 50, right? There was already a subset like immunocompromised individuals for which. Yeah, you know, I'm not even already... sure that falls. I'm not sure that even falls into the context of approval because for individual cases, I think doctors are allowed a lot of latitude. Um, so but if, if, of, if, if a random person just walked into CVS and said, I want another booster, they at least up until today weren't allowed to give or give it to you, even if you were over 50. I would guess that might be the case. I will say that there's nothing to stop anyone from saying that their fourth booster was their third booster. As we, you know, none of these things are, are recorded. We don't have databases. Well, we've got the card. No, yeah, when, we got the when, card. When, when, yeah. when I get, when I went in to give me, when I went in to get my booster, they took my card and wrote the booster thing as the third line on it. So presumably, hey, you know, card. presumably if you want yeah. the fourth booster documented, they will know that you got three, you know, the booster, the previous one. <laughs> yeah, but, the, you know, I, I know you're, you're half kidding, but that card doesn't go anywhere. It's just in your, it's just a card. It isn't, isn't, doesn't have any database that it's linked to. But if the, well, if the, right. if the person I, I delivering just, the shot yeah. wants some documentation, they could, yeah. re- they could, they could require it. And, like, I guess I'm asking, does CVS currently or like wherever currently have guidelines if somebody comes in and they already have three lines filled out on their vaccine card, you're not supposed to give them another one. Right. No, we yeah, should I interview mean, it. CVS. Because I mean, to a certain extent, like if you're, if you're arguing that, that that's you know no no big deal now then this announcement has no t- like isn't really a big announcement 
it's it's not it's not, it's about recommendation and essentially yeah. what the fda is saying that is it is i think it potentially is saying maybe we should investigate that they're actually recommending anyone over 50 who feels that they would like one should be able to go out and get one and i think i just contradicted myself in some level by saying yeah. if you feel you want one uh it's, it's a little different but i think they often don't want to step on the toes of, of individual physicians but it is a sea change in a certain sense because they're essentially saying they'll pay for it the government will pay for it um, and if you want it, you can go out and get it. And you don't have to, you know, do some sort of machination to, to claim that it's your first shot. All four shots are the right. same. It's not like these but, are But they're not, different. I mean, again, it's, you use the word recommendation. So they're not actually suggesting that, um, you, that we should, if you're over 50, get it. Well, you know, that's the problem because the data, and let's get down to the data. The data just isn't there that suggests that it will have a protective benefit. Um, there's suggestions, there's all kinds of observations, there's a bunch of studies. All the studies, of course, are observational. Um, and frankly, and I, you know, what do we do with observational data like this? I do I believe there's a clinical, a clinical trial already being, that's in place, but it's not to test the booster shot, which I think is crazy that it's not there to do that. Because it's so easy to, I mean, it's not easy to do a clinical trial, but it's, I think, so important. But they're actually doing a clinical trial to test a new version of the vaccine right. that is tailored to Omicron. And that's right now in a trial. Um, and that and that is actually interesting because the the I don't know if you saw those announcements that always kept popping up that Moderna and Pfizer were saying, hey, we can tailor the the mRNA vaccine to match anything and we can ramp it up and put it out really quickly, which I believe they can. But the FDA's initial response to that was, no, you, you, uh, you will still have to go through a, a lengthy approval process. And they just threw up their hands and said, well, maybe we're just not going to bother doing that. And I believe that the FDA backed away from that and is now letting this process go forward with a certain expeditiousness. And that leads us to the question, which is, do we take it or not, uh, knowing full well that there might be a new variant, a new variation of the vaccine targeting a new variant? Well, let's begin with just this fourth shot in isolation. The the it's an approval. It's an they're, they're approving it formally, and it's a they're approving a fifth shot for the immunocompromised. So that answers that question. But just would we want it from an efficacy perspective? Would we worry about any downside? How do you trade those things off? And then you're asking a more complicated question, which is in a world where there may be a new. Uh, Type a new a, 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 an immunization tailored to the particular variant that we're seeing. Do you want to take this one now? So one question I have for you is: Is there any downside? So I, I understand there may be some sentiment towards you know I don't want to take this now and there's a new and improved product available. It's like I don't want to buy a new iPhone now. They're going to introduce a new iPhone in a, six weeks from now, right? Um, so yeah. is that the case? Like this is going to block me out from getting the other yeah, one? Well, I mean, like, I just it get is. A, I'll just get sure, a fifth sure. one. So, well, no, because, yeah, I mean, even look at the approval of the booster here. It's for individuals four years old, assuming you've had four months. So, I mean, months, probably yeah. there's going to be at least a four month kind of, you know, of window Require. where you won't be allowed to take another one, at least again, under the assumption that we follow the rules. Uh, you know, so um, it's so I'm a mixed feelings. I mean, yes, I kind of I want my next booster to be basically tailored to you know, whatever the current state of the virus is. So I would be certainly tempted to wait. I mean, I'm not over 50, so I kind of have to, I guess, but like, I would be tempted to wait um, until the new vaccine kind of Omicron specific vaccine comes out. I mean, I, 
I'm only have mixed feelings because I'm a little disc. I mean, this whole like, well, the FDA is like, oh, you have to do a clinical trial. And, uh, you know, Pfizer Moderna said, oh, well, then maybe we won't make it. And the FDA just be like, oh, never mind. That's <laughs> I feel like that's a general. I, I'm a little disconcerted by that kind of regulatory process. Well, I mean, just let me defend that a little bit. I mean, we're looking essentially at basically the same product. I mean, it's is it even as different as Coke and New Coke? Um, I don't know. It, they claim I don't know enough about RMA. I mean, this is a new. Pro, I mean, new. You know, you're. I, I know you're making the new Coke versus Coke Classic comparison, but the Coke Classic in this case is still a new technology too, right? This is like yes, this is a new technology that at least. I mean, I'm not among them, but like a, like half the population is disconcerted by already, and now we're saying mm-hmm. that oh, you know, whatever minor modifications you want to do to this new technology, you don't even need regulatory kind of approval for it. So, I mean, I kind of, you know, I mean, counterbalancing, I I mean, I mean, I mean, well, Kate brought up like, what's the downside or what are the kind of, you know, I mean, the downside is at some point, you know, if this new technology and the lack of regulation leads to side effects that aren't even now even being kind of checked for. Right. That would be a downside. So, so, well, well, uh, Cade led off the conversation by pointing out that you're not even eligible for one. So I'm not going to yeah. ask you whether you would take it. But the question is for Cade, for, for myself, for Eric, what would we do? And I answered the question that I'm going to pass, at least for now, um, having been somewhat recently boosted uh, five months ago, maybe, and somewhat recently infected three or four, three months ago, uh, four months ago, I think, which was actually quite shortly after my booster, uh, my actual infection. I kind of feel that um, now's the time to let it ride a little bit and let's see, and let's keep an eye on it. Aditya, have you thought about your next steps? You know, I think given that four months isn't that long a period of time and there's a lot of uncertainty about the regulatory process, I, and I consider there to be virtually no downside to taking one, I'd probably just go ahead and go grab one. Um, we're seeing results that show that the efficacy does drop, um, especially after six months. I think I'm at the six-month mark. Um, mm-hmm. I'm still not, cons- I'm not, you know, terribly concerned, but, you know, why not take as much of the edge off of this thing as possible? Um, especially well, because I, I anticipate what's the chance. What do you think the chances are that I get this in the next four months? <clears throat> it's gotta be 50% that's, anyway. It's, it's an interesting question. We can, that should be our next conversation, but here's a, a little interesting twist to the decision. Uh, they've actually said openly said, um, do whichever one you want, meaning Pfizer or Moderna, just take your choice doesn't matter what you did in the past, leading me to the, the, the obvious uh, question. Uh, if you've done Pfizer, should you now do Moderna and vice versa? And I, would, I can tell you this, if I were to go and get that booster in a relative short amount of time, I would absolutely pick the Moderna, given that I've had three, three Pfizers. I'd just go for something a little bit different. Well, what happens if you've already um, ensembled a little bit? You've got two Pfizers and a Moderna. Do I even uh, it up or we go back to Pfizer? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I have no way to answer that. It probably doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, probably not. But, you know, that. so let's just, I mean, you talk about what are your chances. And, and if we, we talked about it briefly last week, but I can tell you that the we're getting an uptick here. Um, just heard about a friend's son who got it, who got the, the BA.2 Um after already having had Omicron, um, there it is. And uh, we're getting te- up, reported upticks at locations at college campuses. We're seeing New York City. Um, I've been tracking with the data in, in the UK and, and in Israel, and it is going up. 
it isn't ha- that's not spiking the way it spiked when the, any of the previous waves, but it is it's sort of kind of like decided it would it would change it change its trajectory from down to slightly up, and that's happening in a, in a bunch of European countries as well. Um, so I think we're going to see that too. What's going to make of it? If I just try to do a second derivative analysis, I don't think we're going to see a surge or anything like what we saw in Omicron. But there's going to be lots of cases floating around over the next few months, enough to to notice and care about. Does that does the fact that it's not spite like the kind of like the fact that the, the ascent is so much more muted this time around? Does that suggest that a kind of natural you know, natural or vaccine immunity to Omicron does transfer to this BA2 a little bit. And therefore, you know, I mean, I, you know, again, it's sort of like, you know, I mean, the, the, the lack of a kind of spike suggests to me that there's not a big percentage of the population that actually is, you know, kind of vulnerable, essentially, to BA2, either because of naturally acquired immunity or vaccine. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Shane. And, and it makes it really hard to understand what's and predict because the, the proportion of the, of the population that's naive, I love that word, naive, their immune systems are naive to this, has dropped so precipitously. So yeah. even when you try to do a comparison of boosted versus unboosted, vaxxed versus vaxxed, unvaxxed, you have such a, a, a large percentage of the population already exposed, which means that the base rates are so much, um, you know, the, the the hospitalization rates are now so much lower among among the control group that the treatment group has a has a longer way to go to defeat uh, and to be seen as effective. So I know Eric Topol has has done a bunch of of uh, Twitter posts talking about efficacy, and the efficacy is is against BA two. I think even Omicron BA two especially are are lower, but the base rates are are, are better. So so if you look at the overall hospitalization rates. They are they are you know still really good for the vaccinated and boosted, really good, which is really really want to be um, because that really affects your risk profile. Mm-hmm. So, but let's talk about that for a second. Let's just be precise because Topol, who we've had on the show before and has done a great job of staying on top of this stuff, he has been one advocating for better data collection for one, um, but he's really been good about getting good data in front of people. So, for example, on BA two, he's been eyeing this European uptick for a while, anticipating that it would be here. But as Adi said, he's mentioned, he's looked at these um, evaluations on efficacy and we've got BA1 versus BA2 up. We've got protection against hospitalizations at different timeframes. And we've got two shots versus three shots. Let's just look at what we're seeing. Let's just go to the three shots. So if you're boosted in those first 70 days, protection against hospitalization looks like 81, 83%. And it's pretty much the same for BA2. Past 70 days, it drops, but it only drops about 10% um, to 73, 70. And BA2 is right there. It's real close. It's not that different from BA1 in the data that Topol is sharing. Um, let's just note that they say they cut it at 70 days because they don't have enough data to look longer. So we don't know. You know, Adi says he's at 120. I'm probably at 180 or pushing 200 now we can be sure that it's below 70% now, but let's just note real quickly, three shot. Let's just take, make this word, you know, relevant to our conversation. Three shot hospitalization rates, pre 70 days versus post 70 days, pre 70 days. It's 83%. You can be pretty sure that real real quick. Maybe I'm going to make a point that you're going to say I'm wrong about, but um, if it's, if it's dropping 10% in just the first two months and I'm, six or seven months out, I can be pretty sure that my protection 
against BA2 hospitalization based on three shots is well below 50%. It may be closer to, I don't know, 30, 40%. And the questions that four shots probably going to boost me. It's probably going to boost me back up to this 80%. So we're talking about a pretty big increase in protection against hospitalization, conditional on getting the dang thing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure why I wouldn't do that. Now, Adi, okay, well, first of all, uh, yeah, I'm going to make a couple of points. First of all, what's one of the things that's missing from this chart, which obviously our listeners aren't seeing, but you can go to uh, Eric Topol's Twitter feed. What's the control group? It's not mentioned. And we're talking about it's effect efficacy, right? So efficacy means you're getting a percentage. A percentage of efficacy is versus a baseline. Yeah. Who yep. is the baseline? Not defined. I'm sure if you dig in, you can find it. And I guess my previous point about to it's change. A, so so what's be, true is it's it's good to dig into these things, and we and we need to be. We're looking at Topol's report of a UK you know emergency care data set, and we're taking Topol at his word. And he's probably as good a source as you can find, but these studies are spotty. No question around. It. And so I the guess issue the point is, Adi, is that like, yep. you know, if, if, for example, Omicron in general, whether it's BA1 or BA2, has such a has a much lower risk of hospitalization kind of overall, regardless of whether or not you're vaccinated or not, this, you know, the effectiveness of the vaccine is only part of the story. It could be that Omicron versus Delta versus Alpha is, you know, much less likely to regard to result in hospitalizations overall. Yeah. which, you know, kind of makes the, the vaccine effectiveness and a kind of almost a decreasingly relevant part of the story or a decreasingly yeah, relevant I, part of your decision-making. Right, but I'm, what actually I was, I was definitely thinking about that, but I'm also thinking about the difficulty of doing a study that controls for longitudinal effects, yeah. Partic- yeah. particularly when longitudinal effects are hugely important because of the time-varying nature of the prevalence. And so I don't even know how to accurately create, calculate an effectiveness given all these fluctuations. And I can tell you that the data that's being pumped out by the UK is probably a very simple ratio. And they're not thinking about some of these issues, which raise the real serious point of confounding. So I, I wouldn't, uh, Adi, I wouldn't real quick, jump to the conclusion. Just walk us, yeah. walk us through one of those confounding situations. Just give us an example. Well, so, so, for example, people who've had the vaccine for 70 days or more are a different group of people than the people who just had it. They've gotten vaccinated at a different time. Mm-hmm. And so they're... So, let me make sure I understand. One, they've self-selected, they've identified themselves as being different orientation, different whatever, because yeah. they chose. And the second thing is the world is different. And so the things that's, that they're, okay. That's well, right. I mean, I have to, I mean, I've, I've brought it up. I brought this example up two or three times in our show over the last year, because it's just a great, great uh, data set observation that talks about confounding. If you just look at vaccinated versus unvaccinated people and their death rates from other diseases, not COVID, and you control for age, the unvaccinated are of much higher death rates. I mean, significantly, factor two, factor three, than the vaccinated. They're different people. You're just looking at different kinds of people and different kinds of time scenarios. And I'm not saying it's not the signal is strong and therefore probably at some level reliable, but not strong enough to split hairs between 50 and 60, 70 and 90. These differences are, okay, are well within the, con- now, the Adi, confound just, uh, margin of error. I just ask you for one confounding variable example. I'm sure we could come up with more, but the one you came up with, doesn't it make the results conservative? If people, if healthier people yes. have taken the vaccine earlier, then yes. should have better protection in general. And so if anything, that protection rate is on the average citizen would be lower. 
against uh, hospitalization, well, against severe consequences. Well, you know, the problem is, is that the control group is is hard to is hard to judge, right? So who and they often try to try to do some comparison. Um, I actually, yeah, that's that's a good. You know, I'm not really sure how it would go, but um, one of the problems, of course, is the is the spread of the virus and the natural immunity and and those infection rates. Those are no longer being adjusted for. It's very hard to do. Yeah, and, right. so and, and the, certainly, natural immunity would be an example of a conservative. Mm-hmm. A confounder right. that would push towards conservativeness, right? Because, you know, if, if we're really just kind of comparing vaccinated versus unvaccinated, but, you know, half or more than half of the unvaccinated population actually has immunity just kind of through naturally getting COVID, then that's going to underestimate the effectiveness of the vaccine. Right. I mean, I'm going to follow this up. Maybe we can just, we can share some a- anecdotes, but I, my guess is that, that on, on average, vaccinated people are less likely to have natural immunity than unvaccinated. Yes. Is that a conjecture you agree with? A hundred percent. Ninety percent sure that's going to be. I mean, if it wasn't the case, that wouldn't speak well for the vaccine. That's right. And so I would actually. Well, it also has to do with the risk profiles of people who who take them. Um, And and therefore, the baseline is uh, the unvaccinated baseline is doing just a lot better than they used to. And so, and the fact that we're, that the vaccinated are still comfortably beating it in terms of its hospitalization is 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 pretty good news. I, I just don't see this. Um, I don't so see. Hold on, any, real, real quick. Let me just play, let me just play that one out for a second. If we're saying, well, my gosh, you know, triple vaxxed, and six months later you're only forty percent protected against hospitalization, you're saying, well, that's forty percent versus a control group, and yeah, it's lo- it looks bad, but that control group has gotten pretty good. They're not like. They're not you. They're not naive. They're not as as pure as they may be perceived. And so that the standard has gotten higher. So 40 percent of a higher standard is better than it might look. This is the suggestion. And I guess I'll also throw out that um, the. This isn't age adjusted, and there clearly is an age, not only an age component to hospitalization rate, that's this is relative risk. So that should divide that out. But the relative risk is itself age-related. I don't know if that makes it, do I need to unpack that further, Cade? What do you think? Please, please. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, so, so when I say that the-, the Often I ask for our audience, Audie, but this time I'm <laughs> Right. So often what we think of is relative risk itself is, is we know that, that, that risk is age-related. The elderly are much higher likely to be hospitalized sure. than the young, and that's everybody understands. But what I'm talking about is relative risk so relative risk is the is the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. That's a ratio of risks. And so that's suppose that can um, control for the age effect. But it turns out that the relative risk itself is related to age, meaning a simple way to think about it is, and this is that young people, the vaccine is um, less effective. The boosters, for example, are less effective in young people than they are in older people. Mm-hmm. So, and comparing it to the baseline. And one of the reasons for that, and that could also, it could be because of the immunity, is that basically young people, relatively young and healthy young people, and I mean by young, under 50, even under 60, um, it is, it, it is the, the, even on the unvaccinated, the rates of hospitalizations are way, way, way down. And so, um, that, and that's, and yet in the elderly group, the unvaccinated in particular, the hospitalizations are still quite high. And so, if you look at the effectiveness of the of the boosters, in particular, the vaccines plus the boosters and the elderly, it seems to be much greater than in the younger people. Mm-hmm. OK, um, I, I want to point out one last thing from Topol, and that is that he, he recently 
noted that it's not just cases or hospitalizations that are going up in the UK. The This BA2 wave has been there long enough that the deaths are actually going up as well. And, you know, you said about it's not a big spike, but it doesn't look like a trivial spike to me either. So he's got a chart from the FT, the Financial Times, showing Austria, for example, jumping, you know, in the last week or two from 0.3 per 100,000, 0.3 deaths per 100,000 to over 0.4. So this is over a 33%, that looks more, almost a 50% increase in Austria. Similar, but not quite as big in Italy, UK, Belgium, Ireland, Switzerland, all seeing this uptake in the last couple of weeks with dire consequences, the most severe consequences. So the one question for us is, yes, I mean, look, even these things are different across countries within Europe. US is different from Europe, but we've been asking this question for a few weeks. Why should the U.S. be any different? Why will we not see this kind of uptick in the U.S.? Uh, a ton more yeah, deaths our... before this, right? Yeah. I'm sorry, Shane. Yeah. There's Say been a lot more. Uh, the death rates in the U.S. have been much, much higher than these kind or most of these countries overall, mm-hmm. right? So, again, mm-hmm. if you kind of think about the, the substrate of who COVID can kill this time around, you know, perhaps you know, what one argument would be that a lot of the people that are dying in this wave in these European countries were people that already, you know, th- those same people already died in the U.S. I see. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to follow up with a, a graphical point. Uh, obviously, our listeners can't see this, but this is a this is what's called a spaghetti graph where, where you have these time series piled on top of each other. It looks like a lot of uh, strands of spaghetti. But what you're missing from this, and you mentioned Austria, that's the only country of the ones you've mentioned, Austria, Italy, UK, Belgium, Ireland, Switzerland, that actually has a large uptick in deaths. They're the only one, all the others are very small upticks, very small. They're the only one who didn't have an Omicron. They had a Delta, and then now they're having a combined Omicron BA2. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing their Omicron wave, which is a freight train. It's not, you're not stopping it. Um, and they're just shifted. And it's hard to see that until you, unless you, you break down if you, and, and look at the individual um, strands of spaghetti uh, one at a time. So, so simple stats question for you, stats professors. Do you not worry? I can't point at Ireland and say, look, what do you mean no big jump? Ireland's gone from 0.7 and 0.5 to 1.5. They've doubled the rate per 100,000 deaths. Is that not fair to say? Switzerland, same thing. They've probably jumped from 0.07 per 100,000 to 0.14. They're doubled. The rate per 100,000 has doubled. What's wrong with saying that? Is it because it's too small a rate, man? Doubles aren't as impressive when they're coming off such a small base. Is that the stock yeah. answer? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I mean look, it, it look, certainly look. is part of the answer. I'd like to sort of see some bar, you know, some error bars on this just because, again, in Error bars on like, death rates? Yeah. Tell me about error bars on death rates. I well, they, I, you sure, know, again, like, sure. this is 0.1% per 100,000. Yeah. How many people mm-hmm. in, in Ireland is that based on? <laughs> yeah. What's the population of Ireland? Like a couple, uh, a few million? We should play a game. Um, I, I mean, yeah. like, Less is than this 10 a different, you know, is it different? Like, I mean, I don't think it's this dramatic, but does this boil down to, you know, 15 people versus 30 people? Yeah, right. That's um, why you need yeah. error bars on this stuff. Yeah, and there's it's not only so what, what there's error bars can come from the basic Poisson nature of death, you know, and and that can be quite volatile in a small population, particularly yeah. in deaths of, that are we're talking 0.05 here per hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. tiny, and and the and it, but look at it as a percentage. I mean, 
Switzerland at its height in, 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 in Omicron was 0.3, and now it's about 0.15, increased from about, I can't read, I'm getting so old. Uh, I mean, without my glasses, it's hard to see things. Um, it's up to, actually, it's, uh, it looks like it's, it's now 0.15, up from 0.1. So it has grown 50%, but still well, well less than its Omicron peak. And and it is, it's it's part of that general uptick. And Switzerland is a relatively small country. And the other issue in terms of uh, fluctuations is the timing of reporting, and that tends to be uh, tends to get a little bit bumpy. Things yeah. get yeah. get jumped and then it released, and, and so that's why there's a lot of jigger. Well, you and, can see and, it in, in, the, in the graph. Ireland's graph is hilarious because it's it goes through plateaus, almost like stretches of not reporting. Adi, you said this interesting thing. You said the Poisson nature of death. And so you need to elaborate on that. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, so the Poisson process is a standard way of thinking about um, rare events and, and, and the collective properties of rare events. It's a really fantastic uh, probabilistic uh, statistical trick. And one of the nice things about, about Poisson processes is that the um, mean is, is it, the, sorry, the standard deviation is equal to the square root of the mean. And so you get a very nice... Um, way to kind of figure out what the natural fluctuation is relative to the mean. And so one way to think about this, if, if a country of, say, 5 million people has 0.05 deaths per 100,000, 0.05 deaths per 100,000, we're looking at just a handful of deaths in that country. And the square root of, say, of say 10 is around, is around uh, three. And so it could easily increase by 50% just with natural variation. So mm-hmm. I'm combining Shane's point with, with my own. Outstanding. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, right, you, we've so got we... this uh, this Ireland trend that is very, cho- you know, kind of like, you know, has these large parts where it's not changing. You attributed that to kind of delays in reporting. It could be that literally it's individual people, you know, like, you know, an, an, another person dies and it just jumps by this discrete amount. Right. I, I don't think I don't think it's as dramatic as what I'm describing, but that is the type of thing you do have to be careful about. Well, we do get a smoother curve in small populations. Italy is probably the largest of these countries and we get the smoothest curve there. So that's mm-hmm. consistent with your. Yeah. Again, we're looking at graphs from the Financial Times tweeted by Eric Topol. Eric was a guest of ours during the covid and he's been a good follow on all matters covid. Gentlemen, I think that's it for us this week on covid-19. That's Q1 in the books. We've still got three quarters to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on sirius xm this is Cade massey hosting this week with my longtime collaborators Adi weiner and shane jensen we've got a second quarter ahead of us an opic open topics quarter. You guys can jump in here to the Wharton Moneyball conversation. Best ways to do that are reach out on Twitter. Our handle there is at W Moneyball, at W Moneyball. We're always interested in hearing from you. We follow all of our guests. We occasionally tweet about the world of sports and or analytics and or COVID. But we hear suggestions and comments and ideas and criticisms, and we're happy to up there, at W Moneyball. Another way to reach us is our mailbag. You can reach our mailbag via email. The address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.edu. We read everything you send us. We get as much as we can onto the air, and we love hearing from you. So please 
holler at us. By the way, while I'm on that, guys, real quickly, and just coming out of that COVID segment, we heard this past week from someone who's ready for us to move on. We've had this conversation off and on, and I think it's one that we might open up and start hearing from people on. But let me just read you in case you missed it, in case you haven't seen it. um, What do we got here? We got a note from Carl in Lillington, North Carolina. Carl says, you guys were talking about whether you dropped the COVID-19 segment. When do you do that? He says, please do, or at least consider moving it to the end of the show. He says, I usually only listen for a few minutes before I fast forward to the next segment. Carl wants, Carl wants more sports and less COVID. We've heard a lot of support over the years, enthusiasm for COVID discussion, and we don't yet know in what form we're going to carry it forward or for how long. By the way, Carl also points out, remember the conversation we were having last week about the, the delay that Watson is having in playing QB, and we don't know what the delay is going to have an impact on the field. And we wondered who else has been away that long that wasn't injury-related. Carl points out that Michael Vick, of course, was away for 21 months and had a big season for the Eagles when he came back. But this is an example of hearing from you guys on by mailbag, and we're kind of we're always interested, and we're kind of interested in this COVID question in particular, how we might carry forward what we've been doing over the last two years. All right, gents, we got a lot to talk about in the world of sports, but in particular, we have just reached the final four in both the men's and women's brackets. How much have you been taking in? We talked about it some last week. We had a kind of a fun a round of 16 and then a little bit chalky round of eight on the men's side. The women are super chalky. I mean, we're talking three ones and UConn. The bluest of blue bloods on the women's side was not a one, but they made it through. Any reactions to the NCAAs to this point? Well, I, 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 my reaction is that I watched more NCAA women's basketball than I have ever this last day or two. To thanks of my, I'm in Florida um, with my uh, uh, uncle Lenny, who absolutely adores it, particularly UConn, and I had a great time watching the women's women's NCAA. Um, is that because you know, your team Stanford made it through? Is you're you're a Stanford yeah, guy? You got some I'm biases. A and I did forecast them based on not actual observation, but just some, some quick check through the, the, uh, the standings uh, to win it all in our NCA bracket prediction. But uh, I will say, you know, I, one of the things about watching, you know, the NCA men's game compared to the NBA is it's just a lot slower game. Um, and I expected that the NCA women's game would also be even uh, order of magnitude slower. And I was surprised to say that it just was not. It was a very fast paced game, lots of passing, lots of shooting. And one thing that's actually quite interesting about it is because the distance to the basket is so much lower for the, for the women than for the men, and particularly when you factor in you know, reach and, and jumping ability, all the shots look acrobatic. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> they have these crazy behind the back and turned into it's just it's great fun to watch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's awesome. Well, let's talk about the women's bracket real quickly. We saw um, the all the one seeds except for was it Louisville that got knocked out? No, Louisville made it. Louisville knocked uh, uh, UConn knocked out in that double NC overtime. State. NC State, incredible was, game, a double overtime game. One at the uh, end, with, three pointer on the buzzer. Three point. It was at the end of the first overtime ended with a three pointer on the buzzer to tie it. And it went to a second overtime. First time, I think, ever in, in a in the lead eight. Right, right. All right. So how do we do in our predictions, guys? The 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 Wharton folks asked us to make these predictions. They got them out. We all had South Carolina through. We all had Stanford through. Almost all of us had UConn through. Adi went kindly with my Texas Longhorns. 
I don't think that was a fair pick, Audie. I think Texas. That yeah, wasn't a fair pick. Yeah, yeah, it was. You got the wrong You got the wrong division there, or the wrong uh, regional. Um, so the thing about the women's is that it's a little chalkier than men's in general. That there's there's more distribution That's of talent, right. and so the ones have a little bit easier go on the men's side. How do you feel about the men's side? Where where did you watch in that tournament? I think aren't we all uh, basically with the same? Would we all basically have Villanova and Kansas and and struck out on the other two? Well, yeah, I, had, I had I had Gonzaga to win it all, so of course that kind of got busted. But you know, it's not. I did right. have uh, Villanova and Kansas kind of going to the Final Four. I, I think it's kind of. I mean, a couple of things. I think it's kind of ironic after we were, you know, so much of the context for talking about seeding, imperfect seeding over the last couple of weeks was kind of slamming the Duke, the decision that Duke like was yeah. put at number two right. for kind of right. political reasons. And here they are the ones making it out of their, you know, out of their quarter yeah, yeah. bracket. So, I mean, yeah. shows, well, I this, guess, this, kind of, I don't know. I mean, shrink to the priors. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. This, it does feel like some teams gel late in the year, especially these young teams. I mean, they're playing a bunch of guys that are true freshmen and it's possible that they are still progressing pretty significantly. It's possible even in the heat of the tournament, they're progressing. I was texting with a buddy of mine who went to Duke whenever this was the first weekend. I'm like, what kinds of expectations do you have here? And he's like, ah, they play young. Ah, Not much. They play young. And then, you know, which is fair. That's a fair characterization for the year. But then they had a couple of fantastic games and they looked like they could easily win this thing. In fact, I haven't seen the odds lately, but it's got to be that they're, they're probably the favorites since Nova has injuries um, concerns. They've got to be the favorites at this point. And so I don't know that it was, I still yeah. have my, I still have my qualms about the way they receded. I do think it was political, but they have certainly redeemed themselves and they're playing above expectations to, so far to this point. And it sets up this kind of classic Duke UNC matchup. I mean, not classic for, <laughs> for the NCAA tournament. That doesn't usually happen, but obviously these are two. Well, teams more than it doesn't usually happen. If I heard correctly, they've played each other more than 250 times, but never in the NCAA tournament. How is it possible that they've yeah, never. Yeah, how played? is that? That's, that's amazing. That's amazing to me. I mean, it I must mean, be. They get put into different regionals, so that helps explain a little bit, but also must mean they're both making a lot of Final Fours, but they never meet each other in the Final Fours. I mean, Coach K has some absurd number of four Final Fours, like 13 yeah. or 14. He's never run into UNC in those years. Is it possible that they're kind of counter-cyclical? It's like big rivals tend to – if one's really good, they kind of get the momentum, they get the players, they get the coach, and then it kind of goes back and forth. Maybe they're, it's hydraulic. Is that the right way to think about it? Is that yeah, I mean, it's, I just think it's sort of like, I mean, I think that counter-secular w- w- would make sense as far as them not making it to like, see the pump, like, to, but not meeting in the tournament at all just kind of seems right. Yeah. Right. That seems crazy. Right. 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 Um, um, but yeah. And I mean, like I, you know, I mean, I, I kind of, I mean, UNC is another kind of, you, you could almost, you know, you were kind of talking about Duke maybe kind of being a particularly non-stationary team kind of, you know, over over the course even of this tournament. UNC, it seems like one of the narratives is they're pretty non-stationary as well, right? I mean, they, you know, took a really big hit in their seating with some of the performances that they had kind of during the regular season. Right but now they're right. now they're right. there. Right. You know? And they, I mean they they beat they beat Duke in that seat the final regular season game, beat them handily. Mm-hmm. Um, it sets up, I mean, Duke won the first game handily. So it sets up for an interesting, I mean, my gosh, if you and see, you know how fired up they would be if they could not coach K, if they could give him an L on his last game, that would make them so happy. That's, I, I do feel like it, it stands to reason that the 
the players have just a little bit more motivation than the typical players. You'd think it'd be maxed out in a tournament, but might they have just a little bit more that they're playing for Coach K's last team? They don't want to be the team that sends him out with a loss. They could be the team that sends him out with a championship. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't think you should minimize that. Type. I, I, I agree. I agree. And it kind of like I was sort of watching – Essentially, this like uh, you know, it was it was, it was not so much uh, the guy was watching the Kansas University Miami game um, this this weekend, and of course the the kind of story on that game was that you know it was actually very competitive in the first half, and I think uh, Miami even went into the halftime with the lead, and it was looking like oh my goodness, are these guys going to upset right. you know yet another top seed? Um, and then Kansas completely dominated in the second half. It was like yeah. something like a 38 run or something like that. They went on and it kind of yeah. got me thinking that like, I mean, maybe they figured something out at halftime scheme wise, but I think it's more likely that, you know, it must be the case, especially in these kind of mismatch underdog favorite stories that, you know, the underdog kind of comes out all gangbusters and has this huge kind of adrenaline for even being in this game and kind of being, you know, but you know, is it, is it the case that it's kind of that underdogs in particular, one of the way, reasons in which they, you know, we, they lose is that they, they struggle to kind of maintain that energy, energy and adrenaline level for a full kind of, for a full, the full length of a game. Cause it right. certainly seemed to seemed in this case that, you know, the University of Miami, basically they had enough energy and adrenaline for one half, but not for the entire game. Right. And on the UNC side, they might not come in quite, you know, fired up enough considering yeah. the different discrepancies in the perceived talent and they have to kind of get a wake up call. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about that. We've talked a lot over the last two weeks about what the seeds will be. Just forget the teams and talk about the seeds. And we got a heuristic and you, 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 we, we got it from our guest a couple of weeks ago, but we also could just see it in the data for anticipating what the distribution of seeds will be in the final four. So when it comes to picking your final four, something to keep in mind, the heuristic was, Go with a one and then maybe a second one or maybe a two and then maybe a two or a three and then a dark horse. And the dark horse can come almost uniformly from four through 11. I mean, there have literally been as many 11s as fours, as many 11s as fives. It's a little flukish because there are fewer nines and tens, but you can just go grab a dark horse. And sure enough, we end up with a, a one, a two, a three and a nine. It's a nice, it just matches broadly the characteristics we expected but that nine is getting up there. It turns out that there has been one nine before there's been a 10 before, and there've been about five elevens, but that means it's about the 75th percentile largest, you know, tops, the worst seat, maximum yeah. seat. So, and I think it, it was almost, it was flying under the radar just because we had a 15 that possibly could have made it. And so we were right. kind of like overly focused on that. Um, Did it that, 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 that particular game looked like <laughs> look like they look like a 15 seed in that particular game. They just, what's your explanation for how they can beat Kentucky and they can beat Purdue. Either one of the, you know, lots of people had Kentucky or Purdue to win the dang thing. They can beat Kentucky. They can beat Purdue. And then the nine seed just completely takes them to the, to, to, to the woodshed. Can I, yeah, I mean, again, I would I, guess, go ahead. I would just guess that a lot has to do with the fact that now they were seen. And they looked at their weaknesses and how much of St. Peter's did anyone actually really look at? This is a big thing about basketball is your prep. And, uh, you know, at that point, there, there can't be a great team. We know that. And so <laughs> it's possible that a weak team beats a, beats a better team with surprise and some clever and some luck. And even happens twice, but three times, no. Yeah, I think that's, that's, I think that's a very parsimonious answer. And also let's recognize that 
Oh no, that was the second game. So they probably got some tape on them. Um, I don't know. They must've done tape a little bit on them during the week, even though they can't have anticipated they would get through Purdue, but I agreed. So, so they just had more time to scout and they had more time to figure them out. They saw, they got, they saw them in more high pressure situations. And as you said, Adi, I mean, they just don't have the horses. There's no way they have the horses man to man as right. UNC does. And UNC, you know, yeah, we can say a nine seed, but it's still UNC. And they, they, they t- tend to be better than a nine seed. All right. So any thoughts on the final four? Um, maybe you have, maybe you don't. I don't think I have anything interesting to say about it. I mean, I've kind of, you know, I, I don't have, this is not like an, inf- like I'm, I'm cheering for Villanova, kind of the hometown, the hometown team. But I mean, other, other than just that, I don't really have a, you know, empirical reason to support them. We've got Villanova is looking at something like three titles in five years, five years, six years. Only other coach that's done that is John Wooden. So Jay Wright is really, really doing something here. Um, they've got to get through Kansas and they've got to get through them without the, without the, without one of their best players. And so it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Um, all right, fellas, what about baseball? I know we've got some news. Adi, for God's sake, is down in Florida trying to scare up like interviews with actual players right now. What's going on down there, Adi? Well, I went last yesterday to the Nationals game. They played the Marlins in, uh, in the Nationals home park. It was an absolutely beautiful day. It reminded me how just great it is to be at a baseball stadium. It's a small park. You're, all the seats are short distance from home plate. It was a wonderful day to be there. But as always, what has strikes me as, as the baseball's biggest challenge is why are the games so dang slow? This is a spring training game with very little offense because it was four to one. Yet it, everything just moved like a snail's pace. And I had the... I guess this is a, a credit to YouTube. I watched some old videos of Nolan Ryan working and that guy just, he, the ball was thrown back. He never left the mound. He threw 10 seconds between pitches, mm. the average time between pitches. And I, I took out my stopwatch and was recording some of them for different pitches. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Took out, who has a stopwatch that they can take? Well, it's a met- metaphorical stopwatch, Kate. Let's be real. It's my it's my <laughs> stopwatch <iPhone>. app <laughs> on your phone. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You imagine it. it's a little, 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 little yeah. I want to hear the click. Two buttons on here. Yeah. They click, click, right? No, not that. And it's not meant to be. Accurate, you get to, you carry your radar, your radar gun also, Adi. You break yeah, your radar. So, so I did not have my radar gun, although I think there's an app for that too. Um, Twenty-five seconds between pitches seemed to be. The, the approximate average. But one of the things that I noticed was that a lot of that time is the pitcher staring at the catcher, trying to figure out what the sign is and getting, and that just takes a little bit of time where they look at each other until he's confident that he knows what this cat, the catcher wants. And the catcher is confident. He knows what the pitcher wants. And I just got a little update um, from someone at the team, essentially telling me that one of the things that they're introducing is essentially risk, an electronic risk, a wrist device, which will communicate that automatically. And that should hopefully speed yeah. things up because they won't have to be communicating signs the old fashioned what? way. No one could ask. What? This yeah. is crazy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really? <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, no, that's, that's something. And they've already experimented with that in the last couple of years. And I think AAA and like Pacific Coast League or something like that. This kind of, yeah, essentially a way of kind of where the pitcher and catcher can kind of technologically communicate the sign without having to actually kind of show it. So it Okay, this is utterly sensible. I'm pleased that the caveman amongst us is actually mm. in 
fan, a fan of this technological advance. Yeah. But by, by the way, how does it work? Well, just, I can imagine. Hey, Ruth didn't have this. So no, why, why should it be no. allowed? So I have to say, I have to say, I don't, I don't like the game getting shitty. And if that's a word I shouldn't say on the radio, I don't really care. And one of the things I mean by that is so God darn slow. Yeah. It just makes the act, the activity of the game boring. And many people find it boring already, but I don't care what many people think. But it is boring to have to sit there and watch two people stare at each other. And maybe that's a function of the fact that their repertoires are larger, that everything is much more scientific, and meaning that analytics is used so much more. They actually track which pictures come and where and whom and you know, these charts. And, and these are our students and our faculty members and, and, our, and people who are generating this stuff. And it's a lot of tech. And perhaps it just is slowing the game down. And so I, as the Luddite and the caveman among us, I'm willing to sacrifice this in order to get the game back to a decent under maybe two hours and 45 minutes. That would, would be, you be Would you also favor as kind of part of this, like, you know, enforced pitch clocks? Oh, well? okay. So that's an interesting one because the- well, well, I got a clarifying clock. question. I have a clarifying question about the technology thing. How is the catcher signaling in this new bracelet thing? How is the catcher oh. conveying? Well, that's maybe we should try to find someone who's used it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not they quite sure. A, I think it's just tapping essentially like it's almost like a, I, I think like almost like an iPhone watch and they're just tapping like I, I think. Somewhere like on his body's tapping. Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting. We need to see this thing. We need to hear more about it. All right. Sorry, Adi, you said pitch clock. You got some, you got to take on the pitch uh, Okay. Clock. So the pitch clock is, you know, so obviously, so a pitch clock was already implemented in the minors and they got a 20% increase, a shortage, 20, 20 minute decrease in the average game time. There, the pitch clock was set at 18 seconds, but that pitch clock was a per pitch clock, which I don't think the professionals are going to go for. You're not going to get uh, the greatest pitchers on earth to agree to take 18 seconds to, to throw between pitches on every pitch. What I've proposed, I proposed it on, on the radio, is that we replace that with an average pitch clock rather than an absolute maximum, impose an average, and that average is, is essentially calculated at the end of the game, and then assessments and penalties are 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 um, are essentially assessed. I guess that's the right word. What's, after what's, the game, what and I don't know what get fined or something like that. Yeah, what, I mean, so that that is that's that's, that's, that's not sounded. I mean, I don't understand. Like, I mean, a you can enforce. It's a lot easier to enforce it on a per pitch basis yeah. and you actually choose to enforce it i mean i know the greatest pitchers in baseball don't like being told what to do blah 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 blah. but i mean the umpires technically have all the leverage they can just give them a, a strike or whatever you know i mean you know i mean yep. it is and, enforceable it just create create you know this willpower yeah and, and and the other difficulty of course is, is the batter one of the things that the batters do is they take time getting yeah. back into the box no i mean that so. stepping out of the batter's box is another thing that has to be enforced is not you just, just, they should not be allowed to do that. So, so look, one the, why, why is it so special and precious? They can't do these kinds of things. They've had, they've had in golf, they've had time limits and guys get warned and guys speed up and guys get penalties. It's a thing. It binds for some players. Yeah. But it's I mean, in I, the I, rule book. The greatest pitchers <laughs> in baseball are real prima donnas, I think is what it comes down to. <laughs> right. I mean, the fact that yeah, like, yeah. you know, remember I didn't when know you Fernando- were so anti-pitcher Shane. Well, I think they are prima donnas. I mean, I like, you know, the, I uh, do you remember last season when Fernando Tatis hit like a home run, it was like, the game was like, really like, you know, I mean, it was lopsided and there was, you know, three, you know, it was bases loaded and it was like a three Oh pitch and he had the goal to swing at it. And the pitcher was so incensed that Fernando Tatis did his job, which is to hit mm-hmm. a home run. 
because in baseball, you know, you're not supposed to swing it. The unwritten rules of baseball are that you shouldn't be so mean or something. <laughs> hey, man, if, you're start, if, if you're going to start complaining about the unwritten rules of baseball, it's going to be a long conversation. Yeah, no, that's right. Because there are there are a few of those. Um, we're gonna. I'm gonna. I want to hear more on another show. We have time to talk about it. But the Red Sox apparently signed a Gold Glove shortstop and aren't going to play him at shortstop, which is always interesting. Shame yeah, I know. We're, we're got to get into that. All right, guys. We've got more on baseball to come over the next few weeks. We got an actual season ahead of us, which will be great. That has been two quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now, another open open topics, open sports quarter. This is Cade Massey in here this quarter with my buddy Shane Jensen, longtime collaborator, buddy, co-colleague. Shane, just kind of a what caught your eye in sports uh, moment, kind of a short Q3, but I think we have to note how the U.S. men's team did for qualifying. They've played two of the three games in this final tranche of qualifying, and they tied Mexico in Mexico which is about as good as they could hope for. They've never won down there in World Cup qualifying. Mm-hmm. And then coming home to play Panama, needing a win to get some points, they crushed them, 5-1, I think it was. And they've got one game left. They're going to Costa Rica tomorrow afternoon. And they, they would have to lose by six goals to not qualify for the World Cup. And so we're feeling pretty good. Crazy things have happened, but losing to Costa Rica by six is probably not going to happen. So we had our buddy, Chris Alexopoulos, longtime ESPN producer. I like to say he's the best soccer producer in the world. He had, and he was, it was practically a therapy session. He was so worried about. No, yeah. I mean, he was, uh, I mean, it was hard to kind of get, I mean, the worry, the worry was palpable, basically, you know, he (laughs) definitely, the, the, the chances, you know, the chances he gave the U S team of either of these two results, either kind of getting out of Mexico with a point or getting out of, you know, Panama with three points. He he didn't paint a very optimistic picture. So it was kind of nice to sort of see the the U.S. execute, I guess, above expectations because it doesn't seem like that's been really their style the last few years. No, and I think that's really what it is. That was more PTSD. He knew that he is like, that's why I say therapy. It's like the scars from last time around are so deep that it's hard to see very clearly. But, you know, who knows? They, 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 I think most people, I'd say they performed above expectations versus what they've been doing. Now, Shane, you've observed here that USA is the 13th ranked team in the world. That's not yep. a bad ranking as soccer. No, no. no I mean, I, I kind of looked up the rankings because I'm trying to kind of, you know, I kind of want to understand, you know, seeing, as you sort of said, this tie in Mexico versus this kind of clobbering Panama 5-1. What's actually the more impressive of those two results, right? Because, you know, Mexico is, you know, 12th in the world. So they're slightly ahead of the U.S. in the world rankings. Panama's down at 63rd in the world, so decidedly back. Is it, is it more impressive to tie a team, especially, you know, on their home right. turf that's yeah. slightly ahead of you at the top of the FIFA rankings? Or is it more impressive to, you know clobber five one a team that's you know obviously kind of decidedly below you given that there's it's an inherently stochastic sport because another to just kind of ground us you know canada again it's it's amazing to me canada's going to the world cup for the first time they're the ones that actually have been doing the best in this kind of qualifying round 
out of North America. But even though they've been clobbering on all these teams and are at the top of the qualifying, they're still 33rd in the world. (laughs) Well, we know they're not going to move them very fast. This is the same group of guys. Um, But a little celebration for Canada. That's the first time since. And that is the highest ranking Canada's ever had in the world. So, I mean, you know, again, worth noting. But, you know, again, it's it's I just think it's kind of interesting that, you know. Well, I think it's notable here, Shane, because the number of goals mattered because the tiebreaker, you know, there's a lot of ties in these qualifying standings and the tiebreakers matter. One of the tiebreakers is goal differential. And so the and it's going to come. That's why we can say they could lose by five goals in Costa Rica tomorrow. They still qualify. The reason that's the case is because they just won by four against Panama, among the other wins. So um, they've been they played whatever, nine or 12 games total. Um, So normally in soccer, you you know, you get it by a couple of goals, unless you're like Germany and Brazil a few years ago in the World Cup. Unless you completely collapse, generally you don't see these 5-0 wins. And so I don't think it's, in other words, I don't think it's quite as impressive in some ways as it looks relative to typical soccer scores because this wasn't a typical soccer environment. Yeah, I guess you. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I like that kind of framing or that that line of reasoning because you're basically arguing that they had extra incentive beyond usual to co- yeah. to clobber as opposed to just win over Panama. Right. Um. I mean, you know, again, credit them for actually executing on that on that plan. But I, you know, I, I think just kind of given the history, given that it was in Mexico City, and given that you know. The you know uh, I I think that kind of tie over Mexico almost in my mind is a more impressive yeah, outcome. Right. I mean, well, I, we'd have to have Chris back on to sort of I it was hot you know he was so pessimistic about each one of these games it was hard to kind of uh, tease out of him which one he was the most yeah. pessimistic about. Oh. But I I would guess if I had to guess I think he was probably most pleasantly surprised by that tie in Mexico as opposed to the win over yeah. Panama. And it was nice to start the start the week, the week, the last qualifying week, this last tranche um, with that kind of outcome. Uh, something else that come I good fun. Uh, another speaking of past guests, we had Chris on last time a few weeks ago. We had Nate Duncan on Duncan Dunked. He's got a podcast and he also co-hosts a, what they call the strategy stream on NBA.com. And we talked about it, but I had never I'd never done it before. And they talk about giving a different commentary to an NBA game than typical. They're going to be a little more strategy, a little more analytical. And in the breaks, they're going to give kind of interesting commentary instead of commercials. And so I, 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 I went and bought a, a one month for NBA.com. And I went and found this strategy stream. It was once a week, Monday nights. They've only got one more. Regular season's only one more. So they, next week, it's Tuesday night. And I just learned from Nate, they're not going to do it in the playoffs because the TV rights are all different. But anyway, I experienced this strategy stream thing last night. And of all games, it's, you know, it was it was Charlotte. Who was Charlotte playing last night? That one, Denver. Denver, Charlotte. I didn't know I wanted to watch Denver, Charlotte. But Nate was doing the play-by-play. And so I jumped on our, comment, our color or whatever, they, however they divide it. And I'll tell you what, I think I am a one-trial convert to these alternative commentaries for sports broadcasts. It was such a better experience to listen to someone you know, the basic play-by-play wasn't that different, but all the little analysis around it and little comments right. between all that quiet time they feel was much more interesting than a typical NBA game. And I sit here thinking, I need to learn more about the NBA. Anyway, I would feel the same way about a hockey. I still could learn a ton from football. I sat around watching a couple sporting events. I watched basketball with my buddy 
high school buddy that played real good to high school basketball and college football. And, and, you know, he hasn't played in 30 years, but to sit around and watch sports with him, it's just bam, 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 bam. He just sees things faster and you learn more about the sport by watching with people like that. And so this thing that Nate does just converted me instantly. I just want more of these kind of alternative broadcasts. Yeah, no. And I mean, I, I think, you know, you're kind of selling me on this in part because I think, you know, maybe kind of, a, I mean, I, I like watching basketball, don't get me wrong, but I think, you know, something that's kind of taken it from like kind of a, that would take it from casual kind of interest that I currently have to kind of more passionate interest yeah. would be a little bit deeper understanding of the kind of schemes, X's and O's type things. Cause you know, something that kind of from a casual perspective, I guess almost frustrates me about basketball is how much the game kind of does change in that la- like last two, three minutes from mm-hmm. much more of a kind of, flowy sort of like you know kind of athletic sort of endeavor to this kind of strategy and scheme based you know right. almost like much more kind of choppy yeah. you know kind mm-hmm. of like game style but mm-hmm. you know that's i mean if that's kind of when these x's and o's really kick in and it's, you know it just is kind of it's obviously a change in game flow and stuff like that but if i understood at a deeper level and appreciate a deeper level kind of all the kind of elements of that you know, kind of more strategic choppy part of the end game. I, yeah. I, I think I'd probably, that would take me from casual to passionate fan. Well, I think that, I think that's, that's exactly where I'm coming from, Shane. I think we just, we've watched these things all our lives. We've played them, but they're so far beyond our kin. If you've not like dedicated your life to it and someone who has that kind of insight can really deepen our appreciation. So for example, hockey, your sport, I, I learned, I learned to watch hockey. It's a funny thing to say, but as a, as a hick from West Texas, I didn't, I went around a lot of hockey until I lived in Buffalo for a couple of years, but I got to know that sport with guys who had played college hockey. And so it was just really helpful from the beginning. And I would love to have the alternative broadcast from some folks who were going to tell us about strategy and just talk about it at a deeper level. But what I really want is I want Eric and George over at PFF to do some alternative football broadcast. That's what I'm really waiting for and they did a couple of these in the playoffs they did these pff watch alongs but it was really i mean it's and it's cool it's great it's entertaining those guys for for the combination of entertainment and insight they bring i just love listening to the guys those guys talk about football but it was really nice to have with with duncan in the nba to have them like calling the game you know so you're watching the game the normal broadcast of the game but you just had them calling it and that's different from having kind of a, a YouTube thing up and you're watching that. You're kind of watching the game and listening to those guys talk about it at the same time, which is good. But they could take it up a level if they got the cooperation of the NFL. Give them a feed. Let them let them call a game a week like they're letting Nate call an NBA game a week. And, you know, they know some guys at the NFL. Collinsworth has got some pull. Surely maybe he can get the NFL to give those guys a game. It'd be so much fun. No, and I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I watch you kind of a lot of the pro football focus, like YouTube, YouTube channel, basically. But it, a lot of it is kind of either, you know, kind of a retrospective analysis, which deepens my understanding, certainly of what happened in the game. But to kind of have that in real time and have a more kind of perspective aspect to it. As opposed to kind of like a retrospective analysis of like, oh, well, retrospectively, we can point to this at the time yeah, the scheme, right. the, the game turned or the schemes really kind of they started altering the scheme to kind of have that in real time as a prospective. And uh, I mean, it would. Yeah, I mean, I, I watch NFL football very passionately already, but I think that would kind of certainly I could watch it even more intellectually. 
you, you get, it's, you, you, get the, you know, the, the, they're, they're Yahoo's like us though. You know, they can, they go intellectual, but they go, they go fun too. They bring, they bring the entertainment value. And so it's a nice combination. Yeah. Um, all right. One other thing that caught my eye, kind of random thing that caught my eye. I had saved an article. I don't even remember why I came across it to begin with. I think it was when I was looking, I was looking for that Hal Stern article from 98, the Chance Magazine Hal Stern on, on when is a 16 ever going to be to one? We talked about it a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's Chance Magazine, which is a statistics, um, some statistics association, wonderful magazine. Yeah. I think when I was searching for that, I came across this Stigler and Stigler article on skill and luck in tournament golf. So this is Steven Stigler, famous statistician at the University of Chicago, and his daughter, Margaret. And of course, Stephen is the son of George Stigler, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist. So it's a fancy family over there. But apparently, Stigler and Stigler, they play golf and they write stats articles together. So this was a fun little breakdown of the role of chance in tournament golf. And they looked for their main data set. They were looking at majors, but they said that it holds up when you look at non-majors as well. And they were just trying to understand how much of the outcomes are determined by the distribution of skill in the field versus the distribution of luck that a player happens to get. Mm-hmm. And they are very good statisticians. They have a very simple design. They laid it out. They worked with some basic data, but I'm sure that it's robust and it would go through with other designs, but they fund They, they basically observe that for this is, this is, they did men's and women's. They mostly talked about men's. The skill distribution is different in women, but for men's, professional golf in majors, they find that any given round, I should ask you this question. How much do you think for a given round, one round of golf, what's the relative contribution of chance versus skill? So we can, we can observe over time how much difference there is in skill in a particular field. And then we can observe over time the swings around that expected skill level. Like you're talking really kind of about within versus between player variation, essentially trying to decompose those two things. Essentially, but we're going to ascribe all the within period player variation to chance here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's yeah, a that's simplifying right, that's assumption right. that they make. Mm-hmm. And you know, we could bring them on and talk about non-stationarity. They're going to simplify that away for a moment and say, okay, within player variation is chance, and everybody has their yeah, random players draw. Assuming are constant, yeah. you, you, the, the, the latent player ability is constant yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. the relative contribution of skill and chance in one round, one round of golf, not four. One round of golf. Um, wow, 75 luck, 25 skill. Oh, Shane, you're good. Really, really, really good. I think it's more like three and a half to one. It's somewhere between okay. three and one. You say three to one, and it's a yeah. little bit more than that. But that's a that's a very healthy appreciation of the role of uncertainty, Shane. And most people don't. I mean, the lay person just doesn't real appreciate that chance plays a big role. Now, one interesting feature of that is. Well, as somebody who plays rounds of golf where it's, there is no skill, I can observe the luck component. Like I've observed the luck component my entire life. Right. You do sometimes <laughs> walk off the course after a good round and you're thankful. Um, but here's the interesting thing about that. You, you stack up four rounds, the luck you know, the luck doesn't stack up and the skill does stack up. And so they're observing that in these major tournaments, that it's not quite one-to-one. It's probably a slightly more luck, slightly more skill than mm-hmm. luck, but that by the nature of playing four rounds, you've kind of even the odds between chance and skill. And it just, it, it makes you think about what it makes you think about tournament design. We've yeah. talked about this off and on for years on the show, how the choices you make and how you set up a tournament affect 
the extent to which skill is going to determine the winner versus the extent to which chance is going to determine the winner. And that varies by sport because chance component varies by sport. The distribution of skill, i.e., you know, team differences varies by sport. And the uh, the perennial question for me is what's the optimal level? What's the optimal ratio there? What do we really want? And you can't say you want to always know who the best is because we don't do, we clearly don't. We want, we like the underdogs. And so this is one thing that drives me crazy about college football. We talk about this every year, like, well, they're not the best team. It's like, well, I'm not sure that's what we're optimizing for, but yeah, no. And I, I, I agree. I mean, like I, you know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, off the cuff kind of, I think about, I, you wouldn't want it to kind of go too much in one direction or another. You know, I guess I, I kind of find myself drawn to, you know, situations where I kind of feel like it's almost like an even balance of skill and luck, maybe more towards skill now that I'm kind of thinking about, but you do definitely want a luck component to it. I mean, again, I've kind of echoed a frustration that I had at least with kind of, you know, most of the last 20 years of NBA of the NBA playoffs, for example, is that it, it kind of goes chalk too much or, 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 you know, the kind of, and I, I think it's less yes. about the actual you know, and I think it's again about, as you sort of said, there's the, uh, there's the inherent role of luck in basketball games and, you know, seven game series can still be very luck based, but there's also the talent dispersion between teams is such that in the NBA where it, it just kind of feels a little bit more deterministic than the NHL playoffs. I mean, mm-hmm. at the same time, the NHL playoffs frustrate fans often because it seems completely random. So, That's right. It may, and it's not, much- but it's almost maybe too random. And maybe March Madness has it just about right. Maybe those runs of 15 seeds into the Elite Eight. We want those. We want those every now and then. All right, Shane. Thanks, man. That has been Q3. We've still got a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We're rolling into our fourth and final quarter. That's become our interview segment in the last two years. This is Cade Massey. My longtime collaborators, Shane and Adi, are here. We've also got our guest here for the first time. We're welcoming on the show, Professor Ian Barnett. Ian is an assistant professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. He's in the biostats department. He does methodological research, correlated and incomplete data, and it turns out he does a little sports analytics. Not just does it, he competes at the highest levels. He came to our attention not only because he's a colleague across campus, but also because he is a finalist in the, the Data Bowl, NFL's Data Bowl, which has become kind of a premier hackathon of sorts. Ian, glad to see you. Thanks for making time. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. Delighted to have you. Listen, why don't we first explain what this Data Bowl thing is, and we'll and we'll... Um, we'll go there because we're going to lose Adi at some point in this conversation. And he's got, he, he's pretty deep in this data bowl. He's feeding students to this data bowl on a regular basis. So let's do data bowl first. And then we'll back up and we'll find out how you found yourself a Biostats profit pen doing football research. Adi, tell us about the data bowl. I'm going to just be quick. I mean, most of us have heard about the data bowl here uh, who are listeners. Uh, it's been, it's a, it's a competition hackathon, but not quite a hackathon because it has a much stronger statistics component than uh, a usual hackathon, um, although not every year, uh, meaning that it's much more interpreting data, coming up with a model and making some predictions and understanding and some recommendations rather than just say a prediction contest. 
so this was started by Mike Lopez, a former uh, stat professor um, who is now uh, head of analytics for the NFL. And he's done an amazing job presenting tracking data and data that no one else has in the public and essentially inviting the public to submit entries of var about various different problems. And our students have been involved in this for, from the beginning. We had a, a group of students who graduated in, in the, who were finalists in the first year and a group of, of um, and, a, and a pair of uh, graduate students who were also finalists um, a few years back. And we've had students finalists from last year, more student finalists this year, both in the undergraduate division and in the open division. And Ian, um, your your the first faculty entry. Um, we had a we had two two student groups who were who were one honorable mention of the undergraduates and another student group, including our, our students, our PhD students, who are actually head to head competitors with you in the who are also finalists. Um, and so it's just a great competition, and we're really excited that our many many people at Penn have been involved in it. So Adi, I think this is maybe the fifth year. Is that right? And I did I didn't know that this is the fourth year. Okay, so the there's a. There's an open division, there's a student division, but it's an undergraduate student. I didn't realize they drew the line there. I would have thought that it was later, but that's sensible. Like the undergrads, the grad students and PhD students are more like Ian than they are undergrads. And so they've drawn the line at undergraduate division and Ian is competing in the open division. He's one of the five finalists, I think there. You've made your presentation, but you haven't heard. No, you haven't made your final presentation. Is that right, Ian? Is that where this competition stands? Well, I, I recorded it, but they it's not going to be public until I think they're going to have a virtual event next month where all the finalists will have their five-minute presentation, which they're going to kind of heavily edit, do back-to-back, -back, and then do the announcement. Right. Um, and I, I have a feeling I'm going to find out alongside everyone else uh, who the winner is. Mm -hmm. Well, each year they have a different question they ask. And this is the NFL really tries to work on something they're interested in. Um, but also they think the public will be interested in. So they make data available. They ask you a question. Tell us what the question was this year. Yeah, well, the question this year was, um, it was all about special teams data. It was incredibly open-ended. Basically, they said, look, this is a very understudied part of the game. Uh, we're going to give you the tracking data down to the 10th of the second of all the player positions on the field, you know, this incredibly detailed data. What can you do with it? Can you come up with a new stat that would be useful to coaches uh, to scouts, can you can you rank players? Um, they made it quite open ended. And mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. do you have any sense of how many submissions they get? You're the yeah, yeah. I I believe I did ask that actually um, when I when I gave my record when I recorded the my final presentation. I think it was in the mid two hundreds, maybe two hundred fifty or so. Okay, and it's serious. Were, I mean, just to play with these data is a pretty serious enterprise. Have you played with spatial data before? Or did you have to get up to speed on that? Yeah, no, I've, I've played with spatial data before. In fact, you know, it's when you study correlated data, be it longitudinal or spatial data, I don't know, it's if you're used to dealing with any kind of correlated data, temporal correlation, spatial correlation, um, they're kind of of a feather. Spatial correlation, generally, it's just kind of 2D, right? Um, and so I feel like a lot of the methods that you apply for one can be used in the other. Um, that that's said, I, I just want to yeah. say I haven't heard that before. I'm, that just shows how simple I am. I think of it as being categorically different. And here come the fancy stats who are just saying, no, these are this is kind of just another dimension. I'm used to having multidimensional data. What's the big deal? That's interesting. Well, I, I'm probably greatly uh, simplifying it there. Uh, there's a lot of nuances to that, you know. Uh, One of the things that's into... nice about this data set, uh, Ian, actually, you, you, you commented on this. It's well cleaned. And one of the hardest part about real live data analysis, particularly high speed tracking data in space, is it's a mess. Um, but one of the things that they do to help make to ease the transition is to make the data clean. Okay. Okay. 
So Ian, you talk about how open-ended this was. How did you decide what you wanted to do with it? And oh, what yeah, did that... you end up doing with it? Sure, sure. So uh, so to start with, basically, I learned about this big data bowl actually through uh, through one of my students who actually connected me with Adi, uh, Ryan Gross, who was a PhD student when I was teaching longitudinal data analysis last semester. And he told me about this. So I learned about the data bowl about a month before it was due. And I probably, you know, Hold on, Ian, give, us, give us context for that. A month in some context will be a lot of time. Is a month not very much time because they open ah. this window and leave it open for a while, right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. I think I think it's open for about three months. Uh, okay. So I, I learned about it in early December. Okay. <laughs> and it was due in uh, early January. And I was teaching at the time. I didn't have too much time to work on it in the in the last uh, two weeks. But I was I thought, you know what, this could be a fun thing to work on over winter break. And had I learned about it earlier, I probably would have maybe mentored one of the other pen teams, but they were all underway. And I was like, okay, I have a little spare time. Why not right. work with this data? Right. So that was the background of why I decided to jump into it. Now, the idea that I wanted to go with was with this kind of data, something that um, I guess always has bothered me a little bit is that a lot of positions are very understudied. So there, you know, the focus here is on special teams. I knew a lot of people would be focusing on the gunners, uh, the vices, and the kick returners, uh, perhaps the punters themselves. But what about like the downfield blocker, right? Yeah, who, yeah, right. Who's, who studies the downfield blocker, right? <laughs> um, so that was actually the core. Yeah, before no I've watched football for a long time. I don't think I've ever heard any attention given, especially on a punt return, a kick return, a little bit more credit. People sure. don't talk about the blockers. I mean, the only attention they get is when they get a penalty for an illegal. Yeah, that's right. They get a lot of attention on penalties. That's exactly right. The referees are kind of paying attention, but that's about it. Right. So so one of the questions I wanted to ask was, first of all, can I somehow quantify or isolate the effect of some of these maybe secondary or tertiary positions, which are definitely not the focal point? You know, when you watch a kick return or a punt return, where do your eyes go? When the ball is caught, I look at the kick returner, right? I'm not really looking at what's happening upfield. You're human. That's exactly right. If you're trained as a football coach, it's different, but you're human. Right. And so I wanted to know, like, who's who's good at that job of, you know, putting the initial block in? I'm sure, you know, actually, I don't want to say I'm sure, but I had a feeling that perhaps some of those up, you know, downfield blocking would have uh, a stronger impact. You kind of only see the result uh, once when your eyes are around the ball, but all this kind of positioning that happens more upfield, there could be a lot of skill at play there, which maybe we're not looking at. Mm -hmm. And I had wanted to find a way with this kind of data, we would maybe be able to quantify that. So that was the Mm -hmm. primary question I had coming into this. Now, the the secondary question on top of this was, okay, can I also look at kind of relative importance of positions? So can I say, okay, uh, you know, the kick returner, how important is that position relative to those downfield blockers? Mm-hmm. Uh, what if what if it's actually a lot closer than you'd think? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and so that was my hypothesis going into it a little bit. And I wanted to come up with a way of quantifying that. Now, I came up with a statistic called Coyote. Now, there's a lot of um, yards over the expected. I'll, I'll break down Coyote for a second. So Coyote is in the animal, spelled the same way. But uh, the Y-O-T-E is yards over the expected. And there are yep. many you know, advanced NFL stats that kind of focus on yards over the expected. The, yep. the difference here was the CO is for conditional. So it's kind of a conditional yards of the expected. And the general idea here was I wanted to kind of zoom in on any given player. So let's think of that downfield blocker. Imagine you have like a bird's eye view of the field. 
and then you go draw a little circle around a particular player. And you really zoom in on this guy. And what I wanted to capture was, can we look at what this particular player is doing, conditioning outside of that circle that we've drawn around him? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we want to hold everything else constant. We only want to kind of look at the effect of what this guy is doing, say, relative to what the average player would have done in his shoes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we can do that, if we have some way of quantifying you know, the field state, and I, I did do that. Um, so, uh, for example, when you have that bird's eye view of the field, I had one model which said, okay, what's the expected remaining return yards given a particular field state? Mm-hmm. And then with that model, I could say, okay. Let me just, just note that you just flew past what would have been absolutely cutting edge four years ago, five years ago. This is like it, what basketball true. has been through and what soccer has been through and football is. Football did this with the running, this contest with the running game a year or two ago. It's yep. this, given this, the field state, what's the expected gain from this point? That's, that's the beginning for you. But that, yes, that, yeah. that's, that's how we're progressing as a field because that's a, really, that's a real big deal. And you just went over it in six seconds, which is interesting to note. All right. So you got that. And then you go where? Sure. Yeah. So there's, there's two big models. I, I did say that in a single sentence, but that is truly half the project. Yeah. Um, and, and the other half. Oh, so hold on. So Ian, that was your first, what, day and a half? And you've, in, the, in the four days you allocated <laughs> to this thing? This is absurd. You just created a field state, expected yards, you know, incremental yards, you know, between Christmas shopping and stuffing stockings. He did this. Okay. So yeah, that was. Happening. I suppose so. You know, I, I have a lot of practice hitting neural networks. Um, most of, you know, 90% of the work was creating the feature matrices, right? And doing the data cleaning and whatnot. But once that's in play, training the models is, is, is fast. Um, okay. Um, but so, so it's maybe a topic for another show. We should probably do a neural network show just to kind of, can we explain that? Can we, can we dare, dare we talk about that for 30 minutes so people know what we're talking about when we say neural network? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I could just say, you know, predictive modeling in general, but the field states are pretty complicated. So I can't just do a, a regression model or I could actually, in fact, I wonder, you know, if I took all the same features and threw it into um, how close you could get? Yeah, I, I don't know how off it would be, but uh, you know, it is this kind of intricate spatial data, and you know, these neural networks essentially they they have very little restriction as long as you give the network architecture enough complexity, they can essentially model any kind of relationship. Um, and you know, you have what twenty two players on the field. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so the input to these models is essentially, okay, what's the relative position of all of these 22 players uh, mm-hmm. next to one another? Where's the ball? Um, uh, you know, how close to the sideline are you? Mm-hmm, all of mm-hmm. this is as input and you have to encode that into a bunch of different features. You know, if you think about the number of dimensions it would take to encode all of that information, for me, it was ended up being 250. Um, and uh, 250 feet. What's an example of a, what's an example of a feature when you say, feature? so, so for example, uh, where, what is the X position? If you think of the football field as your X coordinate and Y coordinate, right? So if your X, X goes from, uh, you know, zero to 120 yards, that's the length of the field. Um, and then Y is, uh, what 53.3 yards in mm-hmm. width. Mm-hmm. So what's the X and Y coordinate of, any given player of all the 22 players, right? You've already, that's 44 features right there. Yep. Yep. Um, But then you also have X velocity and Y velocity, um, acceleration, magnitude of acceleration. um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're multiplying each of these by 22. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and you can see how that really quickly gets up to a big number of variables that you're inputting into your model to try to predict this one outcome, which is expected remaining return yards. Ian, is it is it the case that you don't run out of degrees of freedom because you've got such such fine data? This this temporal, you've got every ten seconds you see these things, and so you can always predict what happens next. You don't have one outcome on the play in some sense. You have you know, yeah. however many seconds he's in play times 10 or whatever it is, you, because you exactly. normally would worry a great deal about just endlessly generating features because you don't really have that much data. Yeah, they, that was not a problem here. Um, it, basically, they gave us access to every special teams play from uh, 2018 to 2020. So three seasons worth of special teams play. I don't remember off the top. But that's of my not head. that many plays. That's not that many plays. And this is the bane Perhaps. of football of American football research is that we just don't have we don't have that many observations. We have a lot of guys on the field. We don't have that many observations. And so, just naively, I'm curious how it is that you can have 256 features and not run out of observations. And so the, and it, mu- it must be just how fine the data are because you observe these guys so frequently. Exactly. You're right. It's more, each, each play is more than one data point, right? We, uh, when I say expected remaining return yards, but kind of distinguishes this from the big data ball a couple of years ago where you just had kind of the initial state and you had to predict the rush yards. Yeah. Here, expected remaining return yards, right? So I care also like five seconds into the play, given that field state, how many remaining return yards? What right. about when the ball is caught, right? So each yeah. one of these are different data points. Yeah. So each play gives a lot of different data points. I think at the end, I had hundreds of, in fact, I, I had too many. Uh, I ended up training on less than the total amount because it was far too many, even though I was actually, wow. I paid for Google's uh, Colab Pro Plus, which is like $50 a month, just so that I could work on this project. And even when I had like the high RAM settings and whatnot, it was too much for that. Um, okay. So okay. yeah, the amount of data wasn't so much a problem when you really, yeah, it's, yep. it really, as you say, goes down to the granularity of the data within the play and the number of data points I got within the play. Okay. Okay. So we've just got the field state at this point and then you've got, yes. and then you're going to go to the second half of the project. Sure. Yes. So we got this expected field state, but, but going back to the goal here, right? We're trying to isolate the effect of any given player. So we have this idea where you look at the field state, you draw a little circle about the player you're interested in. Uh, I, I call that like the halo of influence of that player. And what we do is outside of a player's halo of influence, we condition on that. So with this first model where we have this kind of expected remaining return yards, given a field state, we can calculate, you know, given the actual field state, what is the expected remaining return yards? So let's hold on to that for later. Then we're going to go say, okay, let's just tweak what this one guy did, what this one player did. We're going to go and basically um, within that player's halo of influence, we replace what they actually did with their expected movements over, say, half a second. We have some delta T, and that's a parameter I can change. I ended up, I think the first time through, I did like 0.1 second, projecting 0.1 second ahead. You know, Given where, where I am right now, where will I be? 0.1 0.1 seconds in the future. Yeah. And the idea behind this model was because I trained it over all of the data, this kind of represents what the average player would do if right. put in that player's shoes right. and said, okay, go. Where are you going to be, you know, half a second later? Mm-hmm. And 
so, so now we've kind of generated a new field state where it looks the same as the actual field state, except for this one little circle where we've kind of like cut that out and pasted in their, their expected movement. Mm-hmm. So that's the second model is this expected movement model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the question I kind of have, I guess, yeah. especially thinking about things like, you know, special teams play kick returns is, you know, you know, PFF, the kind of beauty of one of these kind of like sort of like individual like PFF ranking systems is they look at what a players did, like kind of their performance, whether they did their job on each play, kind of irrespective of what was kind of going on around them. Yes. And so I could imagine like, uh, you know, so then what, you know, un- under the recognition that like a lot of kind of players perform did, did their job. It's just in a part of the field. Or did, they did their job, except it wasn't relevant to the play. So you could yeah. imagine like somebody throwing a really awesome block, yeah. but because the kick return decided to head in the, to the other side of the field, there's like absolutely no, that block, even mm. though it was perfectly executed, did nothing to the expected number of yards yes. remaining. And so they would get like in, in your framework, does that perfect block, basically is, is that perfect block kind of meaningless does that not count towards that player you're completely right actually uh it, it would in that specific scenario it would be meaningless because the expected remaining return yards it's it's not really being helped by that so um in that sense you know what this is kind of doing even though you might be missing out on the importance of a player what this is telling you though is the relative importance of positions right so you know, is it worth it? To and it, all, it also does yeah. give kind of, I, I do think of it almost like, you know, in, in, in baseball, we kind of always argue whether war is really like wins above replacement. Should that be mm. an actual kind of retrospective tabulation of what actually happened and how much that player contributed? Or should it be a prospective what that player can be expected to do in the future? And it's right. kind of sounding like in this case, you know, you're losing information as far as what that player's actually talent is, what you might predict right. they could have done in a scenario where the player, you know, the kick returner actually headed in their direction. Right. But it, it still is an accurate estimation of what they actually, you know, the consequence, their impact on that particular play, which even right. though they did their job was zero. Right. There's, there's another thing going on here. And, and that is, it's, and this is, a, this, is, this is a drum that I beat a lot the last few years that conditioning is vital for isolating the impact of that moment, but it, but it, 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 it scrapes away the, then it's not exogenous where that guy is. That, the, the, the best guy, another, you probably already did this yet. So a complimentary analysis would be the, 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 the potential value that guys put themselves in. So once you've done that for everybody, there's a range of possibilities. And for some places on the field, the best player in the league doing the best thing, optimal thing won't change just as you guys have been talking about, won't change. You could look at, so you can basically value the position everybody found themselves in, the potential contribution of every position a guy's been found in. And then you could score a guy and give him credit for more often finding himself in these positions that are potentially valuable. Am I thinking about this reasonably? Now, maybe he shouldn't get all the credit because coaches probably put the best blockers in the most valuable positions, but some guys are probably good because they find a way to get to the valuable spots. And that won't show up in this. This is just the natural part of it. And of course, this is something we always struggle with in these spatial analysis. 
we're not yet to the very good at giving people, we condition out the situation to isolate their performance, but we don't give them credit for creating that situation. Right. And I mean, I think one way around this is just understanding that some positions on the field are not going to be in these kind of, I call it the high impact situation as, as some others. So Mm -hmm. we, we do end up seeing that one of the primary results I had actually was I quantified the impact of different positions against another. So I think in 2020 kick returners were eight times more impactful than gunners and six times more impactful than vices. And so if people don't know, gunners are kind of the, um, on, on the kicking team, they start way out on the outside on the sidelines and their job is just to get up the field as quickly as possible as a kick returner, hopefully um, to, to stop him from doing any return at all, right? But, and then the vice is, is the, uh, on the opposing team kind of protecting the kick returner one-on-one mm-hmm. matchup. So, you know, it, basically we have a way with Coyote of quantifying this importance. What if you're a great gunner and on the outside you did an amazing play, but the kick returner went to the other side, right? So all your expected remaining this, this model, which does the expected remaining return yards, it's not really giving them much credit, even though maybe they completely blew by the vice on that side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what this tells us, though, is that when you're compar- using this statistic to, say, compare players, you should compare vices with vices, and you should compare gunners with gunners, because everyone's going to have, you know, if you calculate this, um, I have coyote per return, which is you look at every play that a part, you know, every kick and punt return that one of these special teams player has participated in over the whole season. And then you just average coyote over all those plays. You're going to get some plays where you're not a big part of it. You're going to get some plays where you are. And so this is a useful measure for comparing within the position. But if I go and say, Oh, Hey, this kick returner has a coyote of five, which means if you put an average player in their shoes, um, the kick return would go in on average five fewer yards. If yep. you were Yep. But yep. maybe a gunner might have a coyote per return of one. Well, I don't want to say he's five times better than him. It's just he's in a more impactful position. And in right. fact, we do see that, right? We we do see just looking at the magnitude of coyote per return when you stratify by these positions, there's huge differences in the magnitude, which is uh, completely relates to this fact. It's a, it's a function of which positions, you know, obviously the kick returner is on ball. It's incredibly more impactful than these other positions that – you try as hard as you might, you know, if the ball doesn't go in your direction, you're not going to have a big impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have kind of also kind of data as part of this on like turn, like fumbles and stuff like that, or is it just kind of the yardage? Yes. Because I'm, kind of, I'm trying to imagine like, could we use this system to also evaluate the kick returners decision of whether or not to run with the ball or call a fair catch? Right. Because mm-hmm. like, you imagine like the kick return, at least, you know, within kind of the framing, the framing you've given kind of can sort of observe the game state like a couple yeah. seconds before the ball arrives right. and yeah. presumably makes a decision about whether they want to run with it or not. And their objective function, I guess, is, is I mean, probably like also factoring in how much they want to get hit. But like, you know, that that would probably be hard to build in. But like, you know, they're really kind of counterbalancing. What are the chances of a ver- me getting hit immediately and giving up the ball, for example, Yeah. versus because because as is right now, I mean, the model, if it was just on expected, you know, yardage or whatever to gain, they yeah. would all, you, you know, you'd always penalize them. There would never be a time where you'd want to decide to fair catch. Right. Yeah. Shane, I love that your mind went there. So I, I have thought about this. Um, 
one one thing that you could do is is change this framework. So instead of expected return yards, yeah, what if you did say expected points added, and then just this first model, I think this is going exactly in the direction you're thinking. You could look and say, well, you know, let's look at the field state, even though we can do it at any point during the play. What about at the point of the catch, right? And then you can say, look, if it's positive, then you can at least say, this is a time when the kick, you can kind of evaluate the decision-making of the kick returner, right? If it's positive and he did a fair catch, well, at least from the point of view of expected yardage, you know, maybe there's, uh, or expected points added, for example, you'd have to do it for this kind of model. Because yeah, you have to account for things like the likelihood of a fumble and things like that. Well, that could get captured. Yeah, and I mean, that, then, then the actual kind of position that he's standing yes. at probably factors in that much more too in that kind of calculation, which exactly. obviously is part of their actual calculation about whether or not to fair catch, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So going back to this model, uh, I guess putting it in practical practical perspective, we talked about all these features. I think in this one, it's very clear what features would be important. It might be, say, the the relative x and y distances of the the nearest uh, defenders to the kick returner uh, at the point of the catch. Those features are going to be incredibly important in this expected point average model, right? It's and and it'll somehow encode um, fumbles without us having to explicitly talk about fumbles, right? It'll encode it. But mm-hmm. that's certainly, I, I have not done that, but I've, I've had this exact same thought process. So I love that you replicated that. Well, it's certainly a behavior that commentators make a lot of, of and viewers make a lot of. You feel like some of, some of your guys make good decisions. Some of your guys don't make good decisions. It'd be interesting to quantify that. Ian, you did end up quantifying players and, and finding how these things are distributed. Give us some sense of where did you see interesting distributions? What did you what did what did you learn? What do you think the NFL has to learn from the analysis you did? Well, I, I think one of the most immediate applications of Coyote, and you know, of course, I'm I'm a little bit biased. I, I think it has a lot of potential, but I think one of the main things that it could be used for is, like I mentioned, it quantifies the impact of positions relative to one another. I think this could be vital when it comes to even just uh, doing player valuations, right? What if you're a GM and you're trying, how do I, how do I divvy up the amount of money I have to work with? Uh, how much should I be spending on, sure, we're talking about special teams, but you can think bigger, right? What if we, you could apply the same framework to, I mean, I didn't have access to this data. Um, if someone who does is listening to this, please contact me uh, <laughs> and is interested. Um, but, you know, imagine running plays or, or passing plays, right? Like ha- you could do the exact same methodology to quantify the impact of, say, uh, alignment relative to a running back. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of uh, address these kind of perennial questions of, which, you know, is the running back good or is it just that he has a good O-line and things like this? And it can really help. Where should I put my money in terms mm-hmm. of should I really spend the extra dollar to get the great guard or or is it worth it to get the premium running back? And I, I feel mm-hmm. like this kind of rel- positional, uh, relative positional comparison that Coyote offers, it gives you this nice intuitive statistic, which which you can kind of say, okay, you know, I get a couple extra yards if I really fork it over for the running back. But you know what? I, I think that these centers are getting underpaid and I actually get some good bang for my buck and it should be a little more even maybe, you know, um, I, I think and linemen would like to hear that. But when you're thinking that big, are, are you thinking that an output of those models would be say a distribution of the value of players within a given position? So you would like all the offensive tackles in the league, for example, you have 64 starters, you have some backups, you have a hundred 
ratings. You have a distribution of the contributions made by the hundred offensive tackles in the NFL. And so you can even decide like, okay, I can get the average. I get this much, you know, contribution. I can, I can buy at the 75th percentile. I get this much contribution. Or I can really reach and go for a pro bowl level player. I get this much. And you then can compare not just across positions, but also what it means to really get out on the distribution for one position versus what it means to get out on the distribution for another. Cause sometimes that is the question of where you allocate your cap money. It's like, I'm, I'm going to go for some starters with some of my acquisitions. I'm going to go for pro bowl with one of my acquisitions and what's the right way to assign those. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's the right way to think about it. You say, okay, you know, I could spend X amount of dollars to go for the 90th percentile of this position, or I could really fork it over, get the 99th percentile, get the pro bowler. And what Coyote can tell you is, okay, you know, I can look at this distribution and say going from 90th to 99th percentile. What if it's a low impact position? You're Mm -hmm. saying, okay, I'm paying this premium and I'm getting this tiny bump in Coyote, right? Whereas what if I could go spend this money in another more higher impact position and go from, you know, 80th to 85th percentile in that position, it would, you know, and, and in that case, maybe I'm not getting a pro bowler, but the spread of this in terms of coyote is so much wider because of a higher impact position that it's kind of worth it. So it turns into optimization problem, right? Of here's my money. How do I divvy it up so that I'm optimizing on coyote over all my positions? I mean, these guys, they're, they're running optimization problems, but their trouble is they're running them in their heads and some of them are really good at it, but they're all humans and they're trying to optimize a 53 man roster. It's a pretty tough problem. Ian, here's a challenge for you. Um, are, are you treating, so this all sounds great, by the way, but the, the challenge in football is that it's very different from baseball. And by the way, we're going to have to have you back to talk about money, uh, talk about <laughs> baseball. We listeners, Ian's been modeling baseball for years. And he says, after years of not being able to beat the market, he's finally figured out how to beat the market. And we're going to want to hear about that once we get into baseball season. But Ian, football is different from baseball in one critical aspect. And that is play is player performance is much less independent in football than in baseball. So here's a challenge for your model. How do you show the way that an offensive tackle, left tackle's performance depends on how the left guard is doing? How do you show that the quarterback's yeah. performance depends on how good a slot receiver is? How, you know, that kind of, that interdependence that we know is a big part of football. How well do you think you can capture that? Yeah. So uh, actually you touched on a great weakness right now, which this, my model works really well, I think for special teams because the players are spaced spaced out a bit more. I talked about this concept at the beginning of the the halo of influence. So I condition on everything outside of that halo of of influence. So something to think about is uh, when I'm modeling, I'm not just replacing what the player I'm interested in is doing with their expected movement, but also the people within that halo of influence. So yeah. if, because I can't just say, I'm, I can't pretend that if I'm, you know, in contact with someone who's blocking me, I can't just replace my movement with my expected movement and pretend that that has no impact on the person who's I'm in contact with, right? So you, right. that's the rationale behind that circle yep. of influence. Yep. But I yep. think what I did, it was a three yard circle of influence. Um, but if you were to apply that to, I, you gave a good example here of alignment. If you drew a three yard radius <laughs> right. circle around anyone on the lineman, that's the entire line that you're conditioning on, right? So you're, you're not isolating the effect of any given player. You're just, <clears throat> and, and so um, 
I, I think actually a good extension from this, the idea of the circle, the halo of influence is a bit crude. Um, mm. Something else which you could instead do is maybe the people that you condition on, you have maybe a third model which says, okay, in the next half second, who am I going to be in physical contact with perhaps, right? Mm. And mm -hmm. you could almost model that. And so you could say, okay, you know, the, the offense, the D-line and O-line, whoever, whoever you're matching up against, you probably need to condition on both of them simultaneously because they're going to be bumping up against one another. But you don't want to get your buddy to the right or your left in the picture. You want to really just focus on yourself. So I do think that there are refinements that could happen with replacing this idea of the circle of influence with some other more sophisticated way of who you, exactly you're conditioning on. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a challenge that uh, we we face in every sport, but baseball, frankly. Yes. Um, and we're we're no one's great at it yet, but we'll get there eventually. Football has the most guys on the field. I guess soccer is the same. Uh, so it's a big it's a big part of it. We'll get there another you know I don't know twenty thirty years. Yeah. Ian, listen, man, we we obviously could do this for a long time. We will have to have <laughs> you back. We appreciate you making time for us. Delighted to know about the work you're doing. Wish you the best in the Big Data Bowl over the next few weeks and months. Yeah, thanks a lot, Kate. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Ian Barnett, Assistant Professor of Biostats here at the University of Pennsylvania, one of the finalists in the open division. That's the above undergraduate division, the open division of the Big Data Bowl that the NFL has been running for the last few years. That has been another Wharton Moneyball, another two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. For the whole crew, Shane Jensen, my buddy Shane, who's been with me here through the whole thing. For Audie Weiner, who was here for most of it. Eric Bradlow, who was in absentia today, but he'll be back for the boss man, Matty Dats, for the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. We appreciate you guys listening. Hope you'll come back next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.